Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. This episode of Michigan Minds is part of a series produced by the University of Michigan Public Engagement and Impact Initiative and the Office of the Vice President for Research in celebration of International Day of Women and Girls in Science. This episode features Shobita Parthasarthi, PhD, Professor of Public Policy, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies by Courtesy, and Director of the Science, Technology, and Public Policy Program at the Ford School of Public Policy. In the podcast, she explains her research, shares experiences testifying before Congress, and provides words of wisdom for others who are embarking on journeys into STEM fields. I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Um, I think ever since I was a little kid, I just have a lot of questions. I think it used to annoy my father, even though he's a researcher himself. Um, But I always used to ask why. Um, And I think as I got older and realized that I could systematically ask questions and get answers, um, that really motivated me and excited me. I didn't actually think that I was going to be a professor. Um, I, I spent some time, I was a science undergrad, a biology undergrad, and then I became really interested in public policy. And so I went to Washington and I worked in Washington and I realized that a lot of the things that I was the most interested in um, were questions that people hadn't really done a lot of research on. And so I decided to do a PhD. But then as I was doing a PhD, I realized that I was super excited about doing research too. Um, and, and I think in addition to asking questions and having a lot of questions, I'm lucky that as a social scientist, I get to talk to people and learn about their daily lives and their struggles and challenges. And that's, I think, what excited me because I didn't realize as a researcher that you could actually talk to people. I think as a, as a biology undergrad, as I said, like I was used to working in the lab and that was a little isolating for me. Um, but, but the social science part um, I found really energizing. Um, so I would say my biggest research accomplishment is my most recent book, um, Patent Politics. So. My first book was about the development of genetic testing for breast cancer in the U.S. and in Britain, and that had a big policy impact, um, and it turned out to get very, um, it it turned out that it would inform this big Supreme Court case on the patentability of human genes. Uh, But in the process of doing that research, I was first struck what I thought was my initial research question, which was, uh, why are certain kinds of um, patents about biotechnology and life forms um, more controversial in Europe than in the United States, because I was doing this comparative study. Uh, And then I realized that that wasn't actually the research question. I'm not sure it was more uh, controversial in Europe than in the United States, but rather that there was even more fundamental differences in the way that the US and Europe approached intellectual property and the relationship between intellectual property and the public interest. And so I found that political context, history, 
um, really influenced these areas that you tend to think of as technical and straightforward, right? A patent you give if somebody's invented something, right? But it turns out it's way more complicated than that. Um, it's a place that's deeply moral and political. And given all of that, you know, what I was interested to learn was that there are all of these um, let's say, political structures and political cultures that shape who gets to participate in the patent system and who doesn't. And so I would, I argued in the book basically that in the European context, there's a much more robust discussion about the public interest, more interests are represented and therefore it becomes more profoundly democratic. Um, and the reason that it was for me the biggest research accomplishment is twofold. One is I got to follow every lead and do this really in-depth study. Um, I traveled a lot. I spent a lot of time in Europe. But also that it contributed to my bigger research agenda, which is how can we make science and technology more equitable and just. And I, it turned out that the patent system is this incredibly important place for thinking about those questions. and. Nobody really, or few people, let's say, think about that. And um, I got to really show how central the patent system is. And hopefully that will mean um, that, that policymakers, civil society groups, average citizens, once they recognize that, they can you know, help to make the patent system more equitable and just. What drives me in my research is that science and technology are increasingly ubiquitous in our lives, right? I mean, you know, whether it's that we wait for genetic testing, today obviously we're totally influenced by whether or not we have a COVID vaccine. Um, you know, nowadays we're totally tied to our smartphones, we're increasingly contending with artificial intelligence, right? We're, we're dealing with technology in all aspects of our lives. And I think that Traditionally, we tend to think of technology as basically good. Um, and so we tend to want more of it. And I think that you know my research, other people's research in my field, um, and kind of what inspired me in the beginning was really realizing that technology is not just more complicated, but that it tends to reflect society. So just like healthcare, just like you know everything else, science and technology also reflect society. And because they reflect society, they reflect social inequities too. And so in thinking about how can we make sure that science and technology are equitable and just, it's sort of an avenue through which I can help to contribute more generally to questions of equity and justice. But I think it's really important in the area of science and technology just because we tend to think that it's objective and outside of society, that makes it even more consequential because those kinds of dimensions don't get challenged or don't get questioned. And so revealing how that happens in these scientific and technological systems becomes even more consequential. So I have spent my entire faculty career at University of Michigan. Um, so I don't know any other university as a faculty member, although I've spent you know, other time, um, you know, I was a grad student and an undergrad and a postdoc elsewhere. But I guess it's a few things. I mean, the, the most, when people ask me that question, I always say the sheer resources, um, you know, and, but tied to that, it isn't just about resources. It's a, it's a real support 
to follow your questions. So there's a trust that people have in you and your brain and they basically say, okay, we'll help you. We're not gonna stop you. Resources aren't gonna be the thing that stops you from following the things, following the questions that interest you, following your passions. And that is huge. Um, and it's obviously a massive public university and so it can provide that, but it provides that in terms of finances, it provides that in terms of students, but it also provides that in terms of faculty colleagues. So, you know, my work has shifted a little bit over the years and the thing is, is that at the university you can find faculty who do all of those sorts of research and are at the top of their field. And you can find little pockets of, you know, research groups or seminars. I mean, there's an endless number of seminars and lectures and workshops and conferences um, in all of these areas. So you can then learn enough to participate in the scholarly conversations, but public conversations, um, regardless of what you're doing. The other thing that's great about the university is the faculty. I mean, there are so many faculty and they are all at the top of their game. They know about all kinds of fields. So even as my research agenda has shifted over the years, I've been able to find colleagues and pockets of the university where people are doing cutting edge research. I can talk to them and learn about these areas. I can go to seminars. There are a billion seminars, workshops, conferences, lectures. And so I can get up to speed and then contribute more broadly to the research and public conversations about that particular issue. So I think um, the place that I, I see my research going next is in focusing on these questions of equity, specifically in innovation policy. So I've done a lot of work, as I said, on intellectual property and more generally looking at kind of how, do we, how is society and social um, values embedded in technological design. But I'm thinking that I might write a book next on how we can ensure that innovation policy in particular is more equitable and just. Um, and so part of that is about patent policy, but a lot of that is about research funding policy. Um, and so how can institutions like the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health really lean into equity and justice, which they are so interested in doing, right? I mean, it, the Biden administration has talked about justice, social justice as being a central tenet of what they want to do. They've hired a lot of staff. Um, but I think that it's about more than hiring individuals. It's about changing the structures of these institutions. Um, and changing the structures of these institutions will influence not only who gets funded, but how they get funded and what gets funded. Um, and I think those are all things that have to change. And so I'm planning to do some research on these institutions. Um, you know, how does science policy get made? How does research funding get allocated in practice? And then use that to hopefully make recommendations that, you know, fingers crossed, uh, might, might influence people. Well, I think one of the things that's really striking is, especially right now, is that women and girls are increasingly going to college and they're actually studying STEM. But if you look at the statistics, they are alienated slowly. Um, and so, you know, some of that might happen at K through 12, but it also clearly happens 
in the in the university in academia and so when i think about what we need to do to change that I think that we have to change the structures a little bit, that maybe our structures are alienating. It goes back a little bit to what I was saying before about our innovation policy structures. So I think that the question is not how many, you know, are women and girls interested in STEM? Yes, we absolutely are. And it's crucial to bring women in STEM into, or bring women and girls into STEM because there are important perspectives to be heard. I mean, you know, 50% of the population are girls and women, and if we want to develop science and technology that actually helps the lives of girls and women, then we need to have girls and women at the table, right? Um, then the next question is, how do we make sure that these are um, structures that aren't alienating? And I think, you know, it's more than just increasing the pipeline or, um, you know, even, I mean, I, I'm, I'm heartened that now we talk a lot more about um, girls and women who are pioneering scientists, especially, you know, women of color who are pioneering scientists and technologists. But I think we also need to think a little bit more about, for example, what, you know, are our structures for discussion appropriate for women? Do women feel comfortable? Are women's perspectives amplified in those spaces enough? I mean, studies show they aren't really. Often women may speak up, but they get silenced or they get mansplained, right? Um, or their ideas get taken by somebody else or they find that the environment is kind of alienating. And so the question is, how do we change the structures, but also change even the ways of um, you know, deciding what's a good paper or how papers are discussed, how papers are reviewed, right? How is research reviewed? Even at those, even in those areas, and here you can sense a theme, right? In those areas that seem like, oh, we created this approach to science because it was the best approach to science. Well, when we decided that that was the best approach to science, we had a pretty homogenous group of people making that set of decisions. So maybe our peer review processes might look a little bit different and be a little less harsh, for example, if we engaged girls and women. But that doesn't mean that they're gonna somehow be less or less rigorous. It just means that we might create different kinds of cultures that won't be as alienating for um, for girls and women. I mean, one of the very exciting things that I've gotten to do at University of Michigan is to um, co-found and direct this um, science, technology, and public policy program. One of the things that I hope my legacy is is to really create, um, help foster this field, help to build systematic thinking about the relationships between science, technology, policy, and society, and to show the world that social science perspectives, this kind of nuanced understanding of these relationships is really crucial to the development and policymaking related to science and technology. You know, I am um, the descendant of Indian immigrants and a woman of color and I, and so I care about the world. I think it's, you know, the, there's a lot going on around the world uh, that the U.S. can um, learn from, believe it or not. Different places do things really differently, and I think that we have a lot to learn about, in particular, um, how to think about this relationship between equity, society, and technology. And so, 
I've had this wonderful privilege of looking at, as I said before, I've looked at Britain and Europe where they have you know, more public healthcare systems and sort of how do they think about technology and how do they build technology so that it is fundamentally more accessible uh, to their populations. Um, how I've also more recently done work in India, right? And India, of course, is a place with vast socioeconomic inequality. And it's been doing this really interesting work to try to uplift grassroots innovation um, and basically say, you know, innovation shouldn't just be the province of people who have a a lot of technical training and people who are already financially privileged, but there's innovation happening everywhere and let's highlight that grassroots innovation um, and see how that can help others. And so finding those kinds of things and learning about um, you know, what we can bring back, what parts of that might be useful in the US is, is super, super interesting to me. Um, the other thing is that I find comparative approaches really, really useful just as a method. So when we're in something, it's hard for us to understand its scope, um, to really challenge it or, or think about what it means, think about relationships. But when you look at something comparatively, um, then you can see its dimensions, right? If you compare an apple and an orange, for example, you see that an apple is a different color and it has a different kind of skin, right? Um, and of course, more generally, when you're thinking about countries that are relatively similar, for example, European countries in the US, um, you can see these very specific dimensions of how values and politics shape these things like technologies that seem like they're the same and are what we call black boxed in my field. And so I find it an incredibly useful uh, method basically for reflecting and challenging my own assumptions about how things um, should be and the relationship between um, technology and values. I was a biology major and then I worked in Washington in policy and then I came back to academia. And so I've always had an interest in making sure that the work of the university, that really crucial research actually has broader impact. I, I think it's, for many of us, I mean, there's certainly a role for academia for knowledge for knowledge's sake, um, but I find my role, especially given the kinds of things that I do, right? Um, I have to have um, uh, a public impact. And so earlier in my career, I mentioned um, the early work I did um, and my first book, Building Genetic Medicine, that uh, I had the opportunity then to uh, write an expert declaration in this Supreme, what ultimately became a Supreme Court case about the patentability of human genes. And in the end, that expert declaration was cited in the early stages of the d discussion. It helped to shape the conversation about the impacts of human gene patents on research and healthcare. And eventually, the U.S. Supreme Court decided unanimously um, to prohibit um, patents on human genes. Uh, more recently, I um, started a podcast, The Received Wisdom, which is designed to bring 
again, this sort of social science perspectives on science, technology, policy, and society to a broader audience. And we interview um, scholars and policymakers and activists to kind of have a more robust evidence-based conversation about these pressing issues, whether it's using facial recognition technology or um, the use of genetic testing or indigenous perspectives on climate change. And I've also learned a lot in these processes because I'm not always a, you know, a researcher in that area. Most recently, uh, I gave testimony twice last year <laughs> in front of Congress, which was kind of bizarre and amazing. Um, and in both cases, it was about equity and innovation. But actually, I was called in to talk about equity and energy innovation. Um, and I, most of my work has been on health-related things, and so that was a little bit intimidating. But but I learned a little bit and had this impact, um, or at least had this opportunity, had this platform. And, um, you know, it's scary. It's pretty scary because you're, you don't know who's listening, or sometimes you do know who's listening, and they're kind of um, important people, right? Um, the first congressional testimony was to the House Appropriations Committee. I mean, they hold the purse strings of the federal budget. Um, but it's exhilarating to think that these little things that you do as a researcher and the things that you, these efforts that you make to take that research and make sure that it has, um, you know, it, that it's digestible and comprehensible to a broad audience, that that can actually influence the world is unbelievably exciting and it's what keeps me motivated. I mean, when that Supreme Court decision happened, I was pretty convinced that I would have had, that I had more impact on the world before the age of 35 than like, I would ever have. Hopefully that isn't the case. Um, but, you know, when I'm 80, I'll be able to say that I had this kind of impact on the Supreme Court and um, that, I've, that I really made an effort and that making that effort made a difference. And I think it is. I think as people are starting to ask questions about how do we integrate science and technology into our lives in a way that is appropriate and responsible and equitable, that's giving me more and more of an opportunity. But the more I participate, the more people ask those sorts of questions. And so there is this kind of feedback loop. And that's, often, that's why I often encourage my colleagues to do this kind of work, too, is because, you know, scholars, we spend, you know, years and years specializing in these fields because we are so passionate about these fields. And I want to make other people passionate about them as well, like I mentioned the patent system, right? I, I, I think the patent system is this incredibly important area that nobody really talks about very frequently. But the only way that people are gonna talk about it is if I speak in ways that are comprehensible to public audiences, because most people, sadly, are not gonna read my, <laughs> my research articles or my research monographs. So I have to kind of figure out how to communicate to a broader audience. This facial recognition process, project that we did is part of this um, project that I created called the Technology Assessment Project. 
And the technology assessment project is really trying to do what I suggested before, which is to leverage academic research and kind of apply it to emerging problems. And the idea is that we use something called an analogical case study approach. And what that means is that we take history, the history of technology, and say, what does the history of technology tell us about X emerging technology? And we wanted to focus on facial recognition because in the last few years, there's been a really growing use of this technology all over the world. Um, you know, certainly in Detroit, for example, it's being used in something called Project Greenlight as a method to ensure supposedly security. But it is also being used, interestingly, and this is what we focused on, in K through 12 schools. So the idea is, again, especially in the US, where unfortunately we have huge numbers, or at least terrifying numbers, of school shootings and mo methods of, um, you know, basically violence in schools. Um, you know, we want to protect our children, and so because we want to protect our children, we have these facial recognition technology companies who say we can do that by installing cameras and surveilling who comes in and out of the school, and so that we thought was very interesting. Of course, since then, facial recognition technology is being used in all sorts of other places, like virtual schools, online proctoring. Um, now there are also facial recognition technology companies who are saying that not only can we provide surveillance, but we can do temperature checks as for people who are entering, right, to prevent against COVID-19. So the technology has become ubiquitous in some ways. And so we wanted to investigate what are the implications going to be, um, especially in this context. And we found that overwhelmingly it's going to be negative. The benefits, this idea that it's going to improve school safety is really hard to assess because in fact school safety um, or you know sort of school shootings and other kinds of events like that are really rare. Um, and so it's very difficult to see whether it's actually going to help. But at the same time, this is a technology that's likely to increase surveillance. And what we know about the history of surveillance technologies is that um, surveillance tends to disproportionately affect already disadvantaged communities, specifically already disadvantaged communities of color. So that means that there's likely to be more surveillance in black and brown dominant schools and less in other places. With that surveillance comes punishment of students who are non-conforming. So that could be gender, um, uh, gender non-conforming. It could be students who express themselves, you know, through their clothing or their hair, right? It could mean the way that, you know, a student who dances through the halls, right? So more scrutiny than, you know, the administrators are going to create new rules about how students should behave, right? And that's, and then that leads to this, um, the history of technology and the history, history suggests generally that in those kinds of contexts, there's going to be more punishment of nonconformity. And given how important nonconformity is in terms of innovation and, um, you know, the progress, social progress, 
that's problematic. But the problem with that, in addition to all of that, you also have these companies who are harvesting this data and then commodifying it without proper consent of these um, kids. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, the school districts, the parents, the children themselves don't often know what these uh, technologies are doing, where the da their data is going, um, et cetera. Given all, in, in the context of all of that, right, none of which is particularly heartening, the technologies aren't particularly accurate. Um, in fact, they are the most accurate among middle-aged white men, but they are less accurate among children, among women, among people of color, gender non-conforming, people who are disabled. Um, and so among children themselves, who are the primary people that we're trying to keep safe. Um, these are technologies that aren't particularly accurate. And as I said, even if they became more accurate, they would have all of these other kinds of problems um, as well. And so we, in our report, not only argued strenuously against um, the use of this technology, but we also provided tools to school districts, parents, and, and actually educational policymakers about the kinds of questions that they should ask when facial recognition companies come to them to, to sell these kinds of products. I'm un un unhappy to say that in some respects, we've been, we've, it's turned out that we were right. Um, so we published our report in August of 2020. And since then, of course, we've experienced COVID-19. And, and in the process of that, there have been many examples of especially kids of color who have been discriminated against by these technologies. So, for example, um, you know, some of these the technologies that are being used by virtual schools when the kid wants to take a, is trying to take a test, the t the camera won't recognize them or the camera says that they're, you know, their eyes are looking shifty, you know, they're not properly paying attention. Um, so that's how these technologies are being used and they're often again being used to discriminate against already vulnerable uh, students. Uh, some local jurisdictions are starting to ban facial recognition technology, but frankly, I think there needs to be national attention to this issue, um, and hopefully there will be, and hopefully we can be part of that conversation. This work that I'm doing now on equity and innovation policy, I have a new article that just came out in Issues in Science and Technology, um, and it's called Innovation as a Force for Equity. And it really kind of, for me, is a, is a, you know, it's written for a broad audience. It's, it's kind of, um, let's say, abstracting the work that I want to do going forward. And it might be a little bit more accessible than my books, although I hope people read my books too. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.